is Living Your Big Bold Life podcast, and I'm your host, Bet Lucas. I have five crazy kids, a full-time career in a mostly male industry, and I've been on a health journey where I've lost over 40 pounds. On this podcast, you will find encouragement for your own unique journey. You'll be provided tools to help you not just survive this life, but thrive in the areas of health, career, and family. So come live your big, bold life with me. Are you ready? I sure am. Hello, welcome to Living Your Big, Bold Life podcast. I am your host, Bette Lucas. Today, we have Dr. Ken Berry on the show, and many of his health perspectives are truly bold. He not only shares about his own health journey, but he shares tips with each of us that maybe we can implement on ours. Tips on how he cured his prediabetes and many of his health conditions, and how he helps many of his patients that he sees today. Also, we tackle what does he think about dairy, alcohol, and exercise. Remember, carnivore or keto may not be the eating lifestyle for you, but there are many other words of wisdom that Dr. Barry shares today that I think we can all implement. We also have to applaud Dr. Barry for being willing to challenge other physicians. As a physician himself, that can't always be easy. I think we can all agree that we have had to be a little bit bold on our own health journeys to truly make some progress. Whether that is being bold with intermittent fasting, bold with eating in a way that we had always been told wasn't the right way to eat, or bold to start prioritizing our health, which we used to think was selfish. I know after listening to Dr. Barry's episode today, it will challenge you to think a little bit more boldly because I guarantee you will see he does just that. Now on to Dr. Barry. Dr. Barry, welcome to the Living Your Big Bold Life podcast. It's truly an honor to have you here today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You know, early on in my health journey, I was fortunate enough to come across a lot of your material, and I just found it so uh, impactful, but also enlightening because you were challenging a lot of things that I was starting to wonder if they worked, you know, calorie counting and moving more, uh, eating less, and, and those things just weren't working for me. And so I'm so glad to have you here to kind of, for those in my audience that may not be familiar with you, which I couldn't believe that could be the case, but I'm so excited to have you here to continue to enlighten us and share some of your journey and background and and uh, wisdom. So let's just get started. Tell us a little bit about you and your health journey and what brought you to where you are today. So I'm a family physician and have been practicing about 20 years. And about 10 years into my practice, I became a morbidly obese, pre-diabetic, chronically inflamed, miserable doctor. And up until that point during my medical training and, and the early years of my medical practice, I didn't put much credence in the importance of nutrition or at all, really. And I mean, I, you know, lifestyle, you know, it matters. You need to be active. You need to get good sleep. But I, 
And so I probably actually put more credence into lifestyle than I did into diet. I really believed, and I, I, I believe that I believe this way because I was taught this way, is that the, the human mammal is, is kind of a magical creature. You can put whatever highly processed crap into the mouth of a human mammal, and somehow they magically turn that into good, healthy, lean body tissue and brain mass. And I think most doctors believe this magical type of thinking that really doesn't matter what you eat. It's, it's all about your genetics and, and, you know, what medicines you take or don't take. That's, that's pretty much really what's going on. Your diet might matter a little, but not that much. And so when I woke up and, and I was getting ready for work one morning and I was bending over to tie my shoes and I got short of breath, and it was not much longer after that before I received the diagnosis of prediabetes. My hemoglobin A1C was 6.1. So I was well on my way to developing type 2 diabetes. And I just knew that there had to be another way. Obviously, all the advice I'd been giving my patients uh, about nutrition, what little advice there had been, was all wrong. I was telling them to join the gym, join Weight Watchers, move more, eat less, just try to burn more calories than you eat. And that wasn't working for them, but I, I secretly uh, suspected that they were being non-compliant. But I lived with me. I was me. And so I, I knew that I wasn't being non-compliant. I knew that I was complying. I was eating the diet that the American Diabetes Association recommends. I was jogging, and I was steadily gaining weight and becoming more uh early diabetic. And I just, that couldn't continue. So I had to raise my nose up out of my little family practice rut and start looking around at other specialties, at other uh, disciplines, and ultimately just into completely different fields of science to finally figure out that there is a proper human diet, that, that human beings should eat just like there's a proper canine diet and a proper feline diet. Uh, there's a proper bovine diet. Every species has its own proper diet that it should eat. And when it eats that diet, it, it prospers, it's vigorous, it's healthy, it's mentally and physically acute and, and agile. But when you don't feed a species, uh, a species appropriate diet, they become inflamed, obese, sick, lethargic, and they live a miserable life and die an early death. And I didn't want that for myself, but I also didn't want my family to have to go through that with me and suffer that with me. And so I decided to, to first of all, change my life and change my health. And it all started with nutrition and it continues to this day with nutrition. Dr. Barry, when you were starting to have these kind of eye-opening moments, did you start getting kind of other physicians kind of challenging you as you were starting to say, wait a second, you know, maybe, maybe all these things I've been told all these years, maybe that's not right. Yeah, I, I actually had quite a bit of pushback from colleagues. And I think it's because they still believe what I believed then. Uh, when when a, a, a woman comes to the office and she's pregnant and we hand her the little three-page handout about what she should eat during her pregnancy, I'd always assumed as a doctor that that had been rigorously studied, that there were control studies proving that that was the best diet for a pregnant woman. Uh, the same goes for someone with high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity. I just assumed that all of the nutritional advice I was giving was backed up by good, solid science. 
And when I started to my own personal uh, health rediscovery journal uh, journey, I, I started looking into this and there's no, literally there's no research that shows that the American diabetes diet is the best diet for diabetics. There's no research that supports the DASH diet as the best diet for humans with hypertension. There's no meaningful research to support any of these diets. What it turns out to be is that these these diets are fads. It's just Mm -hmm. the latest belief of the medical and nutritional community that this is how we should eat. It's based on no meaningful research. It's based on no common sense. And it's not based on any of the paleoanthropological evidence of how we've eaten as a human species our entire time on this planet. And so I think that's why I get that kickback because they just believe that the the advice they're giving is science-backed and science-supported when it actually is not. I've gotten kickback from from State Medical Board, from the American uh, Medical Association, from the ADA. None of these guys want to admit that what they've been proselytizing for the last few decades is meaningless tripe. It, it's not based on anything. It's just the opinion of some old gray-haired men in a room who got together and decided that's how every single human on the planet should eat, and they didn't bother to prove it with meaningful research. And so I, I don't, uh, I'm not offended when I get pushed back I, because I myself, back in 2001, 2002, if you had come to me saying the things that I say now, I would have pushed back and said, that's ridiculous. I've never heard of such a thing. No, no regulatory body has ever said such a thing. Where do you get that from? Right. And I think that's always my question to somebody when they do push back. I'm always like, well, is what you're doing working? Because if it is, okay, great, you know, no problem. But 90% of the people I run into, what they're doing and what they have been doing has not been working and they're they're unhappy with where they're at or they're getting the pre-diabetic results. And so I think I can totally relate to what you're saying here. So you started kind of having these eye-opening moments. You kind of started thinking, well, maybe what I've thought all these years isn't really right. What did that start looking like? How did your journey unfold from there? So initially, I just tried to double down on what I had already been taught. I really started to adhere to the ADA diet religiously. I eliminated saturated fats from my diet. I tried to eat lots of servings of whole grains and fruits and fruit smoothies. And I made the recipes on the ADA's website and ate those. And I would jog three times a week. And I kept getting sicker, more inflamed, more miserable, more uh, closer and closer every day to becoming a type 2 diabetic. So I I had to face reality. What I'd been taught was just wrong. What the ADA was saying was just wrong. It doesn't work. It definitely didn't work for me. And and, and obviously, from the epidemics of obesity, fatty liver, and and type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, it's not working for the majority of people in the United States. And so I I started to really look outside medicine and, and mainstream nutrition I found uh, the the Primal Blueprint by Mark Sisson and the Paleo Diet by Lauren Cordain and an old tattered copy of the Adkins Diet Revolution. I got it for 50 cents at a rummage sale. And I thought, <laughs> well, these guys are saying exactly the opposite of everything I was taught and everything I've tried. But obviously what I've been trying ain't working. That's that common mm-hmm. sense litmus, litmus test that we all have to go through. Maybe these guys know something I don't. So I, I really cut my carbohydrate intake down. I started eating lots more saturated fat. 
And I immediately started to get better, started to feel better, started to look better. My lab value started to get better. Uh, my waistline started to drastically improve. And I thought, well, maybe this is a, uh, hopefully this is safe. I don't know. Back then I had no idea, but I'm going to do this for a month or two or three, just as a temporary hack. And then once I've lost some weight and got my prediabetes reversed, then I'll go back to eating the ADA diet. You see that, that disconnect there? Mm-hmm. Like I still wanted to go back to the old way. And the right. more I researched and studied, the more I realized that the old way is just completely wrong. There's no reason to ever go back to eating the standard American diet, the standard Western diet, the ADA diet, the, the DASH diet, Jenny Craig Weight Watchers. There's no reason to ever go back to eating that diet because it is a, an inappropriate diet. It is not the proper human diet. And so why would you ever want to go back there? And so the more I read, I started reading about this ketogenic diet and I dug into that really deeply and uh, found, you know, there's lots of research out there about it if you if you look. And uh-huh. I thought, well, I, maybe I need to lower my carbohydrate intake even more. I was probably eating 75 grams total carbs at that time. So I thought I'm going to go down to just 20 total grams of carbs and do that for a few months. And after three months of that, my pre-diabetes was, pre-diabetes was completely gone. My obesity wow. was substantially better. I was now only, I would not, no, not only was I no longer morbidly obese, I wasn't even technically obese anymore. I was just overweight, which that's a great victory, right? Mm-hmm. All of my markers for inflammation were getting better. Uh, my severe, uncontrolled heartburn reflux that I had at one point taken two Nexium every single day for was now so much better that I could take a Tums once or twice a week and my heartburn was completely controlled. And so, you know, and so then I started recommending a ketogenic diet to my most morbidly obese patients with BMIs above 35. I mean, what did they have to lose, right? They were already on their way to having gastric bypass or bariatric surgery. Why not try this? Because it had really worked well for me. And so I, I tried it with 20 or 30 morbidly obese patients. And they all, not only did they lose weight, but they came to me with all these reports of, you know, my knee arthritis is a lot better. My heartburn's better. My psoriasis is a lot better. My rosacea's better. Can this diet do that too? And at the time, years ago, I was like, no, nah, that's got to be a coincidence. I, I mean, my knee arthritis is better too, but it's probably because I, I lost weight, right? Well, it turns out that people's hand arthritis and shoulder arthritis, they were getting better as well. And as you know, the hand and the shoulder are not weight-bearing. So you can't really blame weight loss for improvement in shoulder arthritis or thumb arthritis. That doesn't really make any sense. So at that point, I started thinking, maybe it's not just about the weight loss. Maybe this, this way of eating is doing something deeper in our physiology and biochemistry and it was at that point when I started to really consider the, the, the concept and the possibility that we've all been eating an inappropriate diet, that, that we're never meant to eat that many carbohydrates and that many grains and that much skim and low-fat dairy uh, and, and that much vegetable oils. Maybe that's just inappropriate for human beings uh, as a blanket statement, as a, just a rule for all of us. And that's when I really started coming to this this new concept of a proper human diet that doesn't include any of those things. 
So these days I'm eating a diet that's so high in healthy proteins and healthy fats that I have much less hunger and, and, and a very less much uh, cravings than I used to have. And so it's the rule for me to not eat breakfast. When I wake up in the morning, I might have a cup of coffee. I might have some sparkling water, but I, I'm not hungry because the last meal of the day that I had eaten the, yesterday was so satiating that I'm still not hungry. And so it's very common for me to go until somewhere between noon and 4 p.m. before I get truly hungry. And I think so many of us eat out of habit, out of social convention, out of family expectations. And we've done that our entire life. And so we don't even actually know what it means to be physiologically hungry. We don't know what that feels like. We just know that it's 7 a.m., it's time for breakfast. That that doesn't mean you should eat. And, and that's, I think, part of the proper human diet we all need to rediscover is that never should you eat at a specific time of day. Never should you eat for any reason other than you are physically hungry. That is the only reason to eat. The, this mimics how we used to eat back when we were wild animals. It also mimics how every other wild animal on the planet eats. They don't. They never eat because of the time of day, or because you know their uncle Ralph is over. That that's not a reason to eat. When you're eating for these inappropriate reasons, you're making the big food corporations billions of dollars but you're not helping your health at all. And so when I do break my fast, uh, I will typically have some cut of fatty meat. It's usually beef for me because I feel best when I eat uh, fatty beef. I'll cook that in bacon grease or, or butter. I will sometimes have a little bit of veg with that. Very often I do not because I have found that I do best on the lowest carbohydrate diet of them all, which is a carnivore diet. Uh, the carnivore diet is a subset of the ketogenic way of eating. And for many of us who uh, received a, the blessing of insulin resistance, which would have kept us alive 100,000 years ago through the worst of conditions, it's now a curse. And so if I, if I eat like many of my other ketogenic brothers and sisters, I would have high blood sugars uh, and I would have insulin spikes because of the carbohydrates I'd be getting in eating a salad or two servings of vegetables. And so I, I found that for me personally, my diet needs to be as close to zero carb as possible. Yeah, I I found something really similar when I started upping my protein and also upping my good fats. I found I was so much more satiated and I just think that that takes such a mental shift for so many of us because even though there's so many so much more information out there today than there was, you know, 10, 20 years ago about the benefits of this. I could go so much longer. And I started realizing that giving my digestive system a break was really working for me. And I think for so long, we had been eating foods that just were causing, you know, our blood sugar to spike. So we, and we were, you know, kind of this crazy hungry person. I remember driving to work and I would drive to work, Dr. Barry, and I would need to get 
Um, if I forgot to eat at home, well, I'd need to stop somewhere and get a breakfast sandwich, or I'd need to start somewhere and get something because you have to have breakfast. I mean, it's the most important meal of the day. And then I'd have to get a coffee or some, you know, latte or something. And then, you know, two hours later, I was starving again. <laughs> and and it's just so, it's so interesting how if we're eating the right foods that are satiating us and we can go so much longer. And I've heard that over and over. And I think, I know, I don't mean to pick on women, but I do find that men do better on kind of a protein focus forward at times. And when I just say, just push your protein just a little bit more than you're comfortable with, just a little bit more. And then come back and tell me if you're a little less hungry, if you can go longer, if you're feeling better, if you're snacking less. And nine times out of 10, they say, oh my gosh, I never... I never thought I never thought that that would help me. I always thought that that would hurt me, and so I, I think your observations there are just so right on. I mean, Kellogg's and and Post and uh, General Mills would love for all of your listeners to believe that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Their profit margin depends on people believing this myth. Uh, they actually started this myth with their advertising back at, in the early 1900s. There's no truth to this. There's no meaningful research that shows that we need to eat within an hour of waking. There is uh, This is habit. This is fad. This is marketing. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very, very common. I mean, basically, we have, what we're trying to do here is mimic how we ate a long, long time ago, because that obviously was the proper way for us to eat. And so you ate when there was food available and there very often was not food available. And that's what fasting is, is when you're making the conscious decision to listen to your body and say, okay, I know that I feel like I want to eat something right now, but feeling like you want to eat something that's not the same thing as hunger. And many of us, including me, until just a few years ago, I had never been truly, meaningfully, physiologically hungry in my entire life. Right. I, I, I had eaten at, you know, at seven and noon and six for my entire life. That was how you're supposed to do it. And it had never occurred to me to question that. But what we're having to really do as, as healthcare providers and uh, dietitians and nutritionists, we need to go back and question every single thing that we think is right, everything we believe, because so much of it is based on mythology and on just a, a consensus of, of, of experts, and I put that in air quotes, mm-hmm. or on literally on advertising. It's so true. And it's so f- funny, though, how we all take that as, as the Bible. You know, we all take that as, well, but that can't be healthy. And then it's just, it's just crazy. So, so in, in your book, you focus on the, the lies my doctor told me. And what are some of the highlights that, and messages that you hope can proliferate around the world? What are you hoping can really get out there and that people could make some meaningful changes today besides some of the things you've already mentioned? Well, I'm, I'm so happy that so many people have uh, had, a, had a positive reaction to the book. I really appreciate that. It's gotten so many positive reviews on Amazon. I never dreamed that this little book that I dreamed up in between seeing patients at the clinic would ever uh, go as far as it has. Uh, but really, the part of this book that I really hope sticks and resonates 
is one of the chapters at the very end of the book. And it's the chapter that I wrote to healthcare providers. And I, I definitely want everybody to, to, to gain the knowledge in the first part of the book. But the ones I really want to reach are doctors and dietitians and other healthcare providers and say, hey, stop just blindly believing crap. That's not your job. Your job is to know what you're talking about. Just because your mentor in medical school or your professor at the the school of nutrition you went to, just because they said that, that literally means nothing. They probably heard that from a drug rep or they they read that in in a Time magazine article or they saw it on the news last night. It really doesn't mean anything. You have to question every piece of advice you're about to give your patient or your client. You cannot, because it's your fiduciary duty to give the correct information. And so that's that's the audience that I, I really hope find my book and read it. Because if I, if I, you know, just get a random reader and they read it and go, oh man, this is awesome. I'm going to change my life based on this. Then I maybe I'm going to help them and I'm going to help their five or 10 friends, right? But if a doctor reads this book, then not only am I going to help that doctor, but I'm going to help that doctor's 500 other patients who they were previously giving ignorant advice to. And and that's that's the true multiplier I'm looking for. And more and more every day, I have physician assistants and nurse practitioners and uh, advanced practice nurses and doctors, even specialists uh, email me and, or, or message me on social media and say, hey, I read your book. I freaking love it. I can't believe I've been such an idiot for the last 10 or 20 or 30 years. And I said, well, you know, welcome to the club. <laughs> now you know I have to and, and so, but when you, when you help a doctor or another healthcare provider understand, you don't just help a few people, you help their entire practice become healthier. So that's really who I would love to, to get this book into the hands of. So anybody listening, after you've read Lies My Doctor Told Me, give it to your doctor. What great advice. And I love that. And you're right. The multiplying effect is just that much greater. So a patient comes into your office, and obviously we're not providing medical advice today, but a patient comes into your office, doctor, and they are kind of at square one. They're really at the at the early part of the journey. What is some tips that you give them? So if a listener is kind of, hey, okay, Dr. Barry, this sounds great, I guess. You know, what are a few tips that you start to say, okay, this is what I want you to do starting today? First thing I would do is ask them a question. I'd say, now, have you know, you've been doing Weight Watchers or doing whatever. Have you really been compliant with that? Have you really been trying? And 99% of the time, they're going to say, uh, hell mm-hmm. yeah, I've been trying hard, but I don't want to be obese. I don't want to be a type 2 diabetic. I don't want to have fatty liver. I am trying, but nothing's working. So once we've established that baseline, then I say, okay, you need to do the following four simple steps to start to immediately reverse your obesity, your fatty liver, your prediabetes, type 2 diabetes. The list just goes on and on of chronic medical conditions that get better when you follow these four steps. Step number one, and the reason I put this, this one first is because most people get this, they already know this, is to stop all sugars, whether added sugar or natural, mm-hmm. naturally current sugar. And most people are like, well, yeah, yeah, I get that. Okay, I can do that. I understand that. And so not only am I talking about stopping the Coke and Pepsi, I'm also talking about stopping the fruit juices. Many fruit juices have more sugar and more fructose than the high fructose corn syrup in Coca-Cola or Pepsi. And people think they, they have this magical belief that it came from a fruit, therefore it's a, it's a gift from the creator, it's very healthy. Not true at all. 
Orange juice will promote obesity and fatty liver just as quickly as Coca-Cola. And so you've got to get rid of all the sugars, whether added sugar or natural sugar. That's step one. Most people can get on board with that. And so now that we've got those two baselines established, then uh, step number two, which freaks some people out, is you need to stop all grains. There is no healthy grain for a human being. Grains are for birds and for for other uh, herbivores. They're not for human beings. Wheat, rice, oats, corn, all of these things are made of starches. And starches are just long chains of sugar molecules holding hands. As soon as you start to chew up anything made of corn, anything made of wheat, anything made of soybean, anything made of rice, immediately the enzyme called amylase in your mouth starts to break the starch down into sugar. And if you chew on a piece of bread long enough, you'll notice it becomes very sweet tasting. That's from the sugar that you're releasing from the bread. When you swallow that bread, immediately all of the sugar is released, your blood sugar spikes, your insulin level spikes, your levels of inflammation spike. That is part of the problem. So get rid of all grains. Step three is to get rid of all of the vegetable oils, canola, corn oil, soybean oil, peanut oil, safflower, sunflower. None of these are healthy for human beings. We've only been eating them since the 1910s and 20s. Before that, we never, ever ate those oils our entire life. There are no long-term studies showing that they're safe in human beings. So stop all of these inflammatory vegetable oils and use the fats to cook with that your great-great-grandmother used, which are butter, lard, bacon grease, beef tallow, chicken fat, uh, uh, duck fat, these are what we're supposed to use as fats in our diet. Stop trimming the fat off your meat. Stop trying to, to fry the meat out of the, the, the grease out of your meat. You need the fat as well as you need the protein. And then step four is to eat more fatty meat. There is, there's copious amounts of paleoanthropological research data that shows that human beings uh, have, for the majority of our time on this planet, back when we were healthy, so that would be before about 15,000 years ago when we started modern agriculture, we ate as much fatty meat as we could get our hands on. Sure, we would eat some veg and we would eat some seeds and you know we would eat uh, mud if we were starving uh-huh. to death. But if we had our choice, we always chose the fatty meat first. And, indeed, you hear this spoken of in scripture, multiple scriptures from multiple religions talk about the, the fatty calf or the fatty lamb. And that's because that is our ancestrally perfect food. So if somebody would, if, if they have no idea what keto means, carnivore, low carb, no idea what that means, just follow those four steps. And so stop the sugar, stop the grain, stop the vegetable oils and eat lots of fatty meat. You can add some veg, you can add some berries, you can add some nuts, but the majority of each meal needs to be fatty meat. And when you do that, your your physiology and your genetics thank you. And they thank you immediately. And the way they thank you is you start to burn off all the excess fat you're holding and you start to lower the levels of chronic inflammation and your hemoglobin A1C and your insulin levels start to go back to normal. The fat is burned out of your liver. Your liver returns to normal. Your kidney function that may have been suffering returns to normal. Your heartburn gets better. Your psoriasis, your eczema, your rosacea, your arthritis, all these things just magically start to get better. And when you think about 
this in a different way, then it all starts to make sense. Because if somebody's just hearing me say, oh, keto is magic. It makes all these things get better. They're like, what the hell? What's wrong with this guy? But when you when you, when you you shift your paradigm enough to understand that human beings are by design low-carbohydrate mammals who are not ever supposed to eat on a daily basis this much sugar, this much grains, and this much vegetable oils, and we're supposed to eat lots of fatty meat every day. Once you understand that, then once you come to look on the, the, the standard American diet or the standard Western diet or the ADA diet, for that matter, is it's a chronic carbohydrate overdose. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a toxicity. It's a poisoning. So, of course, we're going to have all these chronic complaints and, and maladies, fatigue, and all these inflammatory conditions because we are poisoning ourselves on a daily basis. Any animal that you poison is going to get sick, right? Uh We all know this. And when you remove the poison from that animal's environment, what happens? The animal gets better, almost as if by magic. But it ain't magic. You just stop poisoning the dog. Yeah. Amen. Well, and that's where I start looking at all of these things that, you know, when they start calling Alzheimer's, you know, type three diabetes, and they start, we talk about PCOS and we talk about, I mean, all these conditions that I look at that, you know, people all around us and in our family and our friends and, and maybe ourselves are dealing with, you, you just wonder is, has it been this chronic state of inflammation? And that's when really that, that was a really, Hey, forget, like you said, forget keto, forget all the things. If you can just boil it down to say, I am in this constant fed state and a constant fed state of things that are not serving me and serving my body at at all. And, you know, when you were mentioning sugar, a lot of the people I interview at their heaviest points, they were eating a ton of fruit. I mean, a ton. And, and they thought they were doing, you know, they were doing all the things right. But that you ask them, you drill down and they're like, oh, yeah, I had probably two or three bananas or I had a big, uh, what's the bowl, that fruit bowl with the smoothie in it right. with this and some granola on top. I mean, they're just bombarding their system and then wondering kind of, well, I, I don't understand why. And I think these four steps are just so helpful because I think anyone can go, oh, I can do that. Okay, I can do that. Right. That's, that's cool. And, and you brought up an important point. It's, it's, it's the saddest thing for me when you've got this person and they've just been eating junk. They're having donuts and chocolate milk for breakfast. Uh-huh. And, you know, they're having Doritos and Pepsi for lunch. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, they get some lab work back or they have an event. They have a chest pain or whatever. And they're like, holy crap, I need to stop eating all this junk. Think about how disappointing it is and how just defeating it is. So this person's like, I got to step it up, right? So they start having a huge fruit smoothie every morning for breakfast, uh-huh. or they start having Kellogg Special K and skim milk. And they think that's much better than the Pepsi Cola and the Cheetos that they used to have for breakfast. And then they come and talk to a, a low carb healthcare provider like me. And I'm like, dude, you, sh- you should have just stuck with the Cheetos and the Pepsi because the, the special K in the skim milk has just as much sugar, just as much grain and just as much vegetable oils as your Cheetos and Pepsi. It's literally no better. And, they're, and, and so, but if they don't have a low carb healthcare provider like me, 
And they're going to their doctor saying, hey, man, I'm having a big fruit smoothie for breakfast. And then I'm having all these all this kale. I'm having a huge salad with lots of blueberries. And, you know, I'm using uh, Paul Newman's dressing on there because it's organic and non-GMO. But nothing's changed. My blood sugar is still just as bad. My weight's just as bad. Can you can you can you imagine that person just giving up? They're like, I don't I mean, I, I was eating junk. Now I'm eating healthy in air quotes. Because that, this is what my doctor told me to eat, but they're not getting any better. And so, so many people are just defeated. They just give up and say, screw it. I'm going back to the Pepsi and Cheetos because the fruit smoothies and, and all the, you know, the granola bars, none of that crap helped me. I stayed just as inflamed, just as fat, and just as sick. And that that's that's the true, just, you know, it's embarrassing and it's sad and it's just, it's, it's awful yeah. that people are stuck with this false dichotomy, this false choice. Either eat the junk food or you eat this quote unquote health food, but really there's not going to, it's not going to make any difference because it's still all, both of them, both choices are high carb, both choices are inflammatory and both choices are full of sugar and grains and vegetable oils. So you're still poisoning yourself, just using a little different poison. Hey friends, it's Beth. If you are enjoying today's podcast, I really hope you will join me every week for what I hope you find are inspiring interviews and bold content on topics like family and career and health. And can I also ask you a favor? Can you press that subscribe button and write a review if you like what you hear today? By doing those things, you are helping me get the word out. And I truly would be ever, ever so grateful. It also allows you to be the first to know when new content arrives. So please subscribe today. Now, let's get back to our guest. Yeah, you know, I had a a gentleman tell me the story about how at his work, they have a salad bar, right? And that salad bar line is just out the door. And he used to be in that salad bar line. And then he lost all this weight. He went really low carb. He's similar to you where he really has to keep his carbs really low, you know, carnivore-like eating due to his history of insulin resistance. And he says he looks now, he goes to work now, and he looks at that salad bar line and it just makes him sad. Because he goes, Bet, do you know how many years I sat in that line and I thought I was eating healthy and little did I know, you know, I was topping it with craisins or I was topping it with, you know, the veg oil salad dressing and I was putting all the, you know, little toppings that were just really carbs on my salad and I really was having no protein. I mean, very little to any on that salad. And I was miserable, overweight, and I just want to go to each person at that salad bar and go, hey, maybe maybe this isn't, if this isn't working, I, I have something that does work, but it's over here. It's not here. Yeah, and, and maybe the salad bar is a little bit less bad than the Cheetos and the Pepsi Cola, but for, for most people, it's not better enough to make any meaningful difference in their in their weight loss and their health journey. And so it's just, it's very discouraging, very depressing for people because they just, they're like, I give up. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I think that's a huge point right there that, yeah, it might be a small improvement, but is it small improvement to have lasting change and for that person to really be motivated to change their habits long, t- long term? Okay. So now you have the patient that comes to you. They've just 
hit their stride. They are just, they've done great. They've done, they've, they've done all the, the four pillars and now they're kind of, they're kind of stuck. They're saying, you know, I'm kind of stalled. And are there some foods that you kind of then say, well, let's take a look at this, you know, or, or what do you do from there often that, to kind of help that person uh, continue down their health journey? So for many people, just those four changes alone fixes everything. Wow. Because we, we all have genetic predispositions to have this or that, mm-hmm. right? Like me personally, I'm very insulin resistant. And so for me, those four steps helped my health greatly, but they weren't enough. And so the next thing I would say is now from, from this day forward, you've already done those four steps. I want you to think about your carbohydrate intake knob uh, intake as a knob, just like the volume knob on a stereo. And so whatever amount of carbohydrate you're eating total a day now, if you're if you're losing fat, if your inflammation is getting better, if all your chronic conditions are improving, perfect. Keep the volume right there. But at any point, if your weight loss stalls for two or three months, or you're still having inflammation, or you're still having some problem, turn down your carbohydrate intake. And so say you started out after you made those four changes, you're eating 100 total grams a day of carbohydrate. For I mean, for most people out there, that's going to make a difference. You're going to notice health improvements and you're going to notice an improvement in your waistline. But for some of us, that that's a short lived and then it stalls and you can't make any more progress at 100 grams a day. So let's turn it down to 75 grams a day or even 50 grams a day. And all of a sudden, that weight loss stall goes away. You start losing fat again. All the inflammation continues to improve. And for some of us, 50 50 total grams is perfection. We can live for decades at that, eat lots of fatty meat, a little bit of veg, and do great with that. Uh, And so just understanding that your carbohydrate intake is completely optional. You don't need any carbohydrates. They're all optional. And this is actually... If you press a nutritionist or a dietitian hard enough, they'll eventually admit, yeah, you don't need to eat any carbohydrates at all. None. You don't need any. But but that's boring. So you obviously you want to include some carbohydrates. And so that that gives people the ultimate power to understand that there is no minimum requirement for carbohydrates. There is no essential carbohydrate that you need to get in your diet. And so if you're not making improvement with your weight loss or your your other health goals, turn down the carbohydrate intake knob even more. And at some level, you're going to notice that your gains and your improvement start to pick up again. Okay, here's three foods or three items that I get asked about a lot. And I'd love your take on them and your experience. Milk, alcohol, and then I'd love to tackle exercise uh, after that. But milk and alcohol, I get those two the most. Yep. First of all, let's talk about milk. This is a very important topic. So human beings up until the age of five, six, or seven greatly benefit from full fat milk, okay? Uh, Human beings after that age, somewhere in that age range, five to 10, we all, at least to some degree, lose the ability to digest lactose. And in fact, the majority of humans on this planet are lactose intolerant as adults. Now, all of us need breast milk for the first year or two or three of our life. I mean, anybody who tries to debate that, you just need to click the unfollow button and just ignore them for the rest of your life because 
they're an idiot if they don't if they don't believe that. But at, after a certain age, milk is no longer a health food. The the whole reason that mammals make milk for their babies is so that their baby will gain weight and grow as quickly as possible. That is the reason that we give our babies milk. So I tell adults are like, yeah, but milk's healthy, right? It's carnivore. It's, it's paleo. And I'm like, think about it. Uh, what other mammal on the planet drinks milk as an adult? None, none of them. They know better, right? It, it's no longer healthy for adults. The same applies for the human mammal as well. Now, there are parts of, of d- milk that I don't think are the problem. I think the biggest problem with milk is the is the lactose. Uh-huh. And so if anyone out there is giving your child skim milk or fat-free milk, please, please, please stop that immediately. Your child, if they're still drinking milk, if they're under 10, they're probably getting benefits from drinking milk. But they need to be drinking whole milk only. Please. Skim milk is not healthy for any human. Uh, 1%, 2%. I used to call it the the breast milk of the devil. Please don't give your children low-fat or skim dairy. There's no health benefits in that at all. And as your child gets older, say older than 10 years old, they don't even really need to drink whole milk anymore. There's too much, too many carbohydrates, too much lactose in that. And for some people who have just overt lactose intolerance, they, they know immediately when they drink milk or eat ice cream or anything that has dairy, their, their guts let them know immediately that they made a mistake. Many of us are lactose intolerant not to that point, but to the point where if we if we ingest too much dairy, we'll get our, our arthritis, will, our joints will ache or our skin will start to flare up with acne. This is one of the most common causes of acne out there in teenagers. They're, they're eating low fat dairy and drinking skim milk. When they stop that, the acne gets 80 percent better. And so it's not the fat in the milk. That's not the problem. That's why butter and ghee doesn't cause anyone any problems. Some people are intolerant to the proteins in dairy because especially if it's the dairy of another species, then those proteins are somewhat inflammatory to us. And that's why some of us can only tolerate butter and ghee. We can't tolerate any less fat dairy than that, or we'll start to have problems with inflammation in some part of our body. So that's dairy in a nutshell. And I've got multiple YouTube videos about dairy and and I dive deeper into that on my YouTube channel. Now, alcohol was the next one, right? Yep. Yeah. So let's be very blunt and very clear here. Alcohol is not good for you. There is no amount of any alcohol that is healthy for a human being, period. Now, I I don't mean to beat around the bush here. (laughs) This includes red wine, regardless of what U.S. News and World Report tells you. There is, there are no health benefits in red wine that are not outweighed by the by the health damage that is done by the alcohol in the red wine. Okay, there is no debate about that. If you press a nutrition researcher or anyone who knows what they're talking about, if you press them hard enough and say, "Yeah, yeah," but despite the resveratrol, despite the the you know all the uh, phytonutrients and the magical uh, antioxidants. What about the alcohol and wine? They're going to tell you without without equivocation, alcohol is bad for human beings, period. Now, with that all being said, do I have a drink every now and then? I sure do. Uh, and and I do it, but I don't delude myself into thinking, oh, I'm going to have two glasses of red wine every night with dinner because it's so good for me. No. 
once you remove that myth, then it's just a choice. Do you really love alcohol and how it makes you feel and the taste of that mixed drink? Or were you drinking it because you you really secretly love it, but you were pretending to think it was healthy for you? Mm-hmm. But you got to tease that and say, yeah, there's no health benefits from drinking alcohol, period. But every now and then I'm going to have a gin and soda with a twist of lime because I like it. And that's okay. We're all adults. We get to do what we want to do ultimately, including make bad choices. And so every now and then when I'm out to dinner with my beautiful wife, I make a bad choice and I have a gin and soda with a twist of lime. Yes. I think that that, I think that message is just so important for us all to hear. And, you know, I hear from, it seems like more and more, really the wine is becoming so problematic for so many people's health journey because they're having wine every single night and they're not having just one glass of wine. Dr. Barry, we're having numerous glasses of wine. And this is coming from somebody like, I love, I love a glass of wine. I love to have a martini. I love all those things. However, we cannot think that that is not hurting our health journey, especially when I start seeing, you know, you talk to some people and they'll say, well, I'm doing all the things. I'm doing all the things, you know, Dr. Barry, I, I've got it all down. And then you drill down and you're like, but I'm still having two glasses of wine every night. Well, yep. there's, there is consequences to that. There is. And absolutely, you know, a, a very sweet wine tastes much better than a very dry wine. Yes. So not only in that case are you having the, the damaging alcohol from the wine, but you're also getting all this extra sugar that you shouldn't be ingesting from that uh, quote unquote healthy glass or two or three of wine that you're having every evening. Nothing can stall your, your fat loss quicker than those two or three glasses of wine. You know, some people think if a glass of wine if you can put the whole bottle of wine into your glass, then that's still a glass of wine, right? And that's, I'm sorry, that's not the case. I think I think I've seen some of those glasses. <laughs> I think my husband might have thought that at one point. Um, <laughs> um, well, I think that's great. And then, if someone does want to have a drink, what do you find is a great low carb option? Do you like tequila? You mentioned gin. What do you recommend to them? They're they're like Dr. Barry. Every once in a while, I want to I want to have a drink. What's the best option for me? Yeah. So beer is out. Beer is for college kids. If you still if you still think beer is a sophisticated uh, adult beverage, you need to grow up. I'm sorry. Beer's beer's dumb. OK, uh, that's. And so if, if you think beer is good, you know, a good drink to drink, then you're probably still eating chicken nuggets and ketchup, too. So, I, you know, you and I can't really have a conversation. Uh, secondly, wine pretty much needs to be out unless you're having an occasional one serving size glass of a dry wine like uh, Dry Farms wines. They have some very delicious wines that basically have no carbohydrates whatsoever, and they, they're very low in, in things that might give you a headache that some people experience when they drink wine. That, you know, occasionally that's probably not a bad choice. But And so really it comes down to what you're wanting is a little bit of alcohol with no carbs, at all and nothing else inflammatory in it. And so for me, it's it's gin and soda, not gin and tonic. A lot of people think tonic's fine, but tonic is full of sugar. Totally. Tonic water. Yeah, it's it's a sugar coma. And I used to drink gin and tonic all the time thinking that was that was not too bad until I, I you know I was in the grocery and I looked at a bottle of tonic water and I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> I know. I know. And you did it. And then when you switched to soda, you realize, 
Oh, my gin and tonic was pretty sweet. Like I didn't think it was that sweet, but it was pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, every now and then a, a waiter will bring me by accident a gin and tonic because that's what they heard me say, even though I said gin and soda. Totally. And I take a sip of it, and I'm like, oh man, that's <laughs> like a sugar coma. What I can't believe I used to enjoy that. Oh well, th- I think that's so helpful to hear. And before we dive into exercise, I just want to reiterate. Dr. Barry's YouTube videos are so helpful. And like he said, he goes into so many different food items, so many different issues you might be having, fatty liver, you name it. And you can tell Dr. Barry not only gives a very informative YouTube, but he also is really easy to listen to. So what about exercise, Dr. Barry? What do you, what do you like to recommend on the exercise front? So again, we need to be very specific with our recommendations because for the first few years of my practice, I recommended exercise to help people lose weight. And that's back when I was ignorant. I didn't know better. I I believe that with all my heart. But then when I started looking into the research, exercise never helps people lose weight. And anytime I say that, all the all the gym the gym bros and the you know the the fitness trainers they get very upset with me because that's how they're going to pay their bills. Right, is by tricking people into believing that if you exercise hard enough, you'll lose weight. That never works long term. It it is it is not sustainable, and it's not supported by any meaningful scientific research. Now, with that being so, so the, you know, basically uh, ob- obese people have been told all their life, you're lazy and you're a glutton. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true. You were just poisoning yourself with the wrong food, actually. And I've had many, many patients and client- clients lose substantial amounts of weight with no exercise whatsoever. And indeed, most people who are morbidly obese or heavier they don't need to exercise. It's too dangerous when they first start this. They need to focus 100% on diet. And when they've lost enough weight, lost enough fat, in order for to feel like exercising, and, and, and their body will let them know, oh, I, I feel like going for a walk today, or, you know, I feel like joining the gym, then you should do that. Because the second fact about exercise is that it is very, very healthy for you in hundreds of ways. It decreases your risk of developing dementia. I mean, literally the list of things that exercise is beneficial for, it's hundreds of things long. Exercise is great for your body and great for your mind, but it's not going to help you lose weight. So stop thinking about yourself as a lazy bum. That's not why you're overweight. It's because of what you're eating. After you fixed your diet, then you can focus on exercise for all the other benefits that it's going to give you. But don't join the gym as a morbidly obese person and waste your money thinking that that's going to make you lose weight because it will not work. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I can't tell you how many people I interview and they they say, and I think I've mentioned this, that some of the heaviest points in their journey were, were they when they were at the gym every single day. And they, or they were running a marathon. That was one of the, the Roxy, I interviewed her last week and she shared that her heaviest point in her health journey was when she was training for marathons. Can you imagine that? Like just where you're like, I'm running all the time. I'm doing all the things and I'm still overweight. What is wrong with me? You know, I am, but that's usually our first answer. Our first answer isn't let's address the diet. 
Our first, exactly. our first answer is let's go kill ourselves at the gym for two hours every day. Let's go do this. And then, like you said, on the other, on the other kind of th- fronts, it's not sustainable. So they don't do it. They don't stick with it. And they think that something's wrong with them. You know, it's exactly, you know, and the second group of people, cause you know, we, we've spent the majority of our time talking about people who are overweight or obese. Now let's talk about people with TOFI, which is thin on the outside and fat on the inside. Yes. Just because you're skinny does not mean you are healthy. You could have, you could absolutely have hyperinsulinemia, prediabetes, or even type 2 diabetes and be very, very slender. The only way you're, and, and that's, that's the danger of this, is these people are very slender, so they, they live on the Cheetos and Honey Buns and Pepsi, but they're so slender they think, well, I guess I can just tolerate it. Again, back to that magical thinking that I can just put pure junk in this body of mine and it somehow turns it into healthy body. That's absolutely not true. So a, a slender person can be very, very unhealthy. The only way they're going to know is if they go to a doctor and have their hemoglobin A1C checked and their C peptide checked and their fasting insulin checked because you can be very thin and look very healthy and be pre-diabetic and all of the damage is being done, but you look great in the mirror and everybody compliments you so you don't think you're sick. Yes. I think that is so huge because often that is who we're talking about. We're often talking to the the people that have weight to lose. And yet there are is this Tofi group. And don't you think that Tofi group is the same group that then comes to you, Dr. Barry, with other issues? So they're not coming because they're overweight, but they're coming to you because oh, my PCOS, or oh, I have these other things that are probably related yes. to this, this, this pro, you know, their, their A1C levels or, or, or they're pre-diabetic, but they have no idea because they've always been told you look great, you're skinny, you know, there's no problem here. And this is the group of people that has that early heart attack or that early stroke and you and you hear their friends talking about them and they're like, I don't know. They were so healthy. I mean, they jogged every day. They look great. This just came out of the blue. And this really makes us all afraid that all of this medicine and health and stuff is just some kind of voodoo magic. Like, I mean, he looked great. He rode his bike 20 miles a day, but he just, he just fell dead with a heart attack. How does that make any sense? Well, the reason that makes sense is because that man or woman was pre-diabetic and their doctor hadn't caught it, or maybe they hadn't been to the doctor at all because they're riding their bike 20 miles a day. Why would they need a doctor, right? But all of us, if you're eating the standard American diet, I don't care what your waistline is. I don't care how athletic or active you are. You need to go and have your A1C, your C-peptide, and your fasting insulin checked because those are the markers that are going to reveal hidden metabolic disease that's going to make you drop dead at 45 or 55 with a heart attack or a stroke or make you have kidney failure or make you have uh, fatty liver disease that's going to, you know, you're going to wind up with cirrhosis and liver failure, even though you are the picture of health your entire life. The only way to know if you're eating that crap diet is you've got to get the labs checked. And so if someone grows up eating the proper human diet, they're just not going to have those things happen to them because they're eating the proper human diet. Right, right. I just, I think that is so important because I think so often, you know, we talk about the scale, the scale, the scale, the weight, the weight, the weight. And so much of this can affect 
all of us, no matter what weight we're at and no matter where we are in our journey. And so I love that. So Dr. Barry, where can people connect with you? How can people buy your book, find you on social media? What are the best places to do that? So uh, the book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, is available at all bookstores. And it, it also, there's an audible version. So if you have ADD like I do and you have to listen to a book while you do something else, it's on audible. Relax. <laughs> I love that. I need that. I need that version too, Dr. Barry. Oh yeah. That's the only way I can read a book these days. I have to be doing three other things. And then also I have a little YouTube channel. If you just go to YouTube and search for Dr. Barry, you can find it. I have a Facebook page. Uh, My wife, Nisha and I, we go live every Monday night at 7 p.m. Central on my Facebook page and on my YouTube channel. And we just answer questions for a full hour every Monday night and just try to help people understand and and kind of see through all the myths and misinformation that they've been given their entire life. And uh, so we're doing that. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Parler. I'm on Gab. I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I'm everywhere because that's where people are. And my job is to help as many people realize their best health as I possibly can. That's every doctor's job. And so Mm -hmm. I'm really, you know, like my wife said, when you see people in the clinic, you're helping 30 people a day. When you make a YouTube video, you can help 30,000 people a day. And she was so right. And I'm so glad that I, I said the words that every husband Dread saying, you're right, dear. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah, and so now I'm, I'm able to help so many more people by being on social media than I could ever help just seeing patients nine to five in my clinic. So Dr. Barry, I I hate leaving this interview because you know I have I have a hundred more questions I could ask you, but that's why we all need to find you on the live and, and uh, search you out. But I love ending this podcast with what is the final piece of bold advice that you want to leave the listeners with today uh, here on Living Your Big Bold Life podcast? Do not assume that the doctor sitting in front of you or the dietitian or the nutritionist or the magazine you're reading or the news show that you're watching, do not assume that they know what they're talking about. Do not assume that the advice they're giving you is based on any meaningful research whatsoever. I say it all the time on my YouTube videos. I don't, I don't want you to bl- blindly believe me or anybody. I want you to do the research yourself And that's why I put research links in all the show notes in my videos. I want you to go read about this for yourself. Think about this for yourself. And most importantly, listen to your body's feedback. And so if you're like, I think this Dr. Barry is crazy, but I'm going to try keto for 90 days. Listen to your body during that 90 days. Your body will tell you whether this is right for you or not. Try the American Diabetes Association diet for 90 days. Watch your blood sugar while you're on it. Make some of the recipes on the American Diabetes Association's website, like their apple crisp muffins. And then check your blood sugar an hour after you eat that. And you'll quickly realize your body's telling you, no, no, sir, no, ma'am, that's not the proper human diet. Stop listening to the ADA when it comes to dietary advice because they don't know what they're talking about. Trust your body. Trust your, your own ability to decipher between uh, bullshit and actual good, meaningful advice, because no matter what your what your profession is, I promise you, this is not that complicated. You can make heads or tails of this. You can fix your health 
if you'll just put in a little bit of effort. Yeah, I love that. So we're going to leave today with the bold advice of we're not going to assume that what we've been told for all these years is right when it hasn't been working. And Dr. Barry left us with a bunch of new tools for our tool belt. So thank you, Dr. Barry. We are so appreciative of your time. And go check out his book and his YouTube channel today. Thanks, Dr. Barry. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening today. For more information, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember, friends, be you boldly. The world needs you.